Welcome to a Heritage Christian Centre podcast. For more information, visit www.heritagecc.com.au. We hope this message blesses your life. I want to come to the Word today. And uh, I, I want to talk about a question that comes out of a song. And firstly, uh, there's a song that you two sing, uh, a band It says, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And that's pretty sad for a band that, that has some measure of profession Christ to say they don't, haven't found what they're looking for. But there's an earlier song from when I was younger, and it's, it's, a, it's a bit sacrilegious, but it starts off with some very good thoughts and very good questions by Joan Osborne called What If God was one of us. So just listen to that for a moment. A lot of musicians would remember this uh, introduction. It's a great question. What if God was one of us? And, and for those of us who believe in Jesus, we already have the answer to that. God was one of us. And, and then I want to look at that, both the simple answer and a longer version of that answer. In John 1, 1 to 4 and verse 14, it says this. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without him, nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So God did become one of us. And it's really important for us to to, to actually think about that and what it means and, and all the things that come with it. And it's interesting that God, in that passage, it says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word has a capital. It's not a small letter. It's, a, it's denoting a name. God, the Word. And so when we understand Scripture, we find there was the God, Father, the Word, and the Spirit. And then the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So the Word became the Son of God, the only begotten of the Father. And so we have this revelation of God full of grace and truth. And it's interesting that not everybody receives Him. Uh, God has come for everybody. It says, whosoever will may come, but not everybody will respond. Even though God is going out of his way to make himself known to us, not everyone will accept that. It says in John 1, 11 to 12, the verses in that passage, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God to those who believe in his name. So, so that's, here's this offer that God makes that whosoever will, but the only people who apply it to their life are those who receive it. The us in that passage, to as many as received him, that's us. He came to us and we have to make a choice. This, this us is the people who respond. Some people reject him, others will receive him. And that really is the issue of life. Those who receive, and it's interesting the word there, who receive him, comes from the Greek, which is paralambano. And many of you would have heard the word para, like parachurch, a para organization. It means a covering or, or an overarching. But in the context with para and lambano, it means to receive in one covering and to associate oneself in familial or an intimate act of relationship. So it's about being oneness, this uni, unity and union. That it's when we receive Him. It's not. It's not just something that happens. It's not a passing acquaintance. It's not a, a momentary encounter. You know, we do sing songs like "A Touch from Heaven," but it's more than that. It's this in, this relationship that is continuing with depth, with personal connection. And so God's idea is that we should know Him. And that passage continues and actually declares a sense of spiritual commonality by declaring those who receive Him are those who are then born of God. And we find that continuing reference in chapter 3 of John where Jesus speaking to Nicodemus says, you must be born again. It talks about being born of the Spirit. There is this union that we're born of the Spirit. We become spiritual beings in a rebirthing process that God has. Now, we always, always were, but our spirit was dead in sin, but it's made alive when we receive Him. In John 14, Philip asks a question, and Jesus explains how close this relationship is meant to be. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is sufficient for us. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and yet you don't know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. So how can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father in me? The words that I speak to you, I don't speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does the works. Now, th th this is in one sense beyond our comprehension that one, one can be in another, but that one can be in that one as well. So how does Jesus have the Father in him and yet he's also in the Father? And there, there's only one way that can happen. It's a common union. They are both unified as one. Now, Philip wants to know, and it's interesting because, see, God knows everything about us. God's omnipotent, he's omnipresent, he's omniscient, he knows everything. But we don't know much about God. You can spend your whole life doing theology and still not know much about God. You know, and it's not that we shouldn't, but remember that we are finite and God is infinite. If you filled us up, there's a finite level. But God is infinite. There's no way we can know everything there is to know about God. It's impossible. And the Bible, though, is full of imagery to, to give us aspects by which we can, in some measure, know the important things about God 
And yet the best way to know God is not to know about Him. The best way to know God is to know Him. If you know someone, it's the personal information, the personal revelation of relationship that helps us know. You can know all about people. You can read about people. You can study about people, but you don't know them until you know them. You know, if we know people, we know what's really important. We know things about character, their nature. Uh, their general attitudes and behaviours, their likes and dislikes. We, know, we can know what pleases and displeases. Without having facts, because we have a relationship, we know what pleases by instinct. It's, it's this bond of, of union, of heart, and, and a, a wholeness of intimacy. And it's a wonderful thing that God wants us to do that. And I believe that's the key reason that God came as one of us so that we might know him personally. Spirituality in the Christian realm has nothing to do with religiosity, has to do with intimacy with God. And that's why he became one of us so we could know him. Not that he needed to know us, but we needed a way, we needed a way to know him. And so God bridged the gap that we couldn't. Now the Bible is full of history that records revelations about God, about God, increasing understanding about him. Uh, you know, but by coming as one of us, we can move beyond a knowing about to knowing. When I studied physics, the, we had all these different experiments we used to do that, that sort of explain things. But one of the caveats was this. No experiment will fully explain something and no experiment will have every aspect of it being right. So if you take an experiment and you say, everything I've done in this experiment relates to that topic, you would end up being wrong. I remember we studied light. And light, if you, if you studied light as a particle, you would get a perception. But light was also a wave. And that, that made it different. And if you didn't bring both aspects together and pick out the bit that applied and the bit that applied, you would get a whole bunch of wrong information. That's what happens when people grab the Bible. They grab a bit about God and they try and make God like their whole picture. When it's not, God gives us so many analogies to try and help us know about Him. But the only way is to know Him. That's how we come to a revelation of the fullness of Him. And so everything in the Old Testament, if it's not read through Jesus and not the intimacy of knowing who He is, then we will get it wrong. Everything in the New Testament, if it's not read through the intimacy of the life of Jesus, we will get it wrong. We will get aspects right, but we will get aspects wrong. And so when the Bible gives us examples, even the parables only teach us simple points. The parables aren't giving us a full picture of God. Let me, let me give you an example. There's a parable of the lost sheep. The lost sheep shows Jesus' picture of him going out, leaving the 99. Well, can you imagine God just abandoning 99 people to go and look after one? No, 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 no. God, God can be in both places at once. So the parable already falls down. But it shows the heart of God. He goes and rescues the one sheep. Right? We, we think, oh, he rescued him. Just stop. How would you like to be the sheep? You're stuck in a thicket somewhere, so he puts a crook around your neck and he drags you out through it. That's really comfortable, isn't it? You know, another one. So, so the, the shepherd goes and rescues the sheep. sheep. Another parable. Where you give the parable of the prodigal son. The father doesn't bother chasing his son, just sits on the veranda, waits for him to come home. 
Which one's right? See, if we take just little aspects, we can get a wrong picture of God. We want to get a right picture of God. And I would contend that the best way to know about God is actually to know Him. And to know Him is the purpose that He became one of us. And He became one of us in Jesus. So when we start to know intimately who Jesus is in our own life, we start to know God. Is it possible? Well, I think it must be because Jesus prayed. And he prayed in a way, and I think when Jesus prayed, he knew what he was praying about. Just, just a guess, maybe I messed it up, but I doubt if Jesus messed up his prayers. In John 17, 11. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world and I come to you, talking to the Father. Holy Father, keep them through your name, those whom you've given me, that they may be one as we are one. Verse 22, and the glory which you gave me, gave me, I have given them that they may be one just as we are one. Now, now let's just touch glory for a moment. John says of Jesus, the word of God became flesh. We beheld the glory of the only begotten of the Father. Jesus now says, I put that glory in humanity. So there's, here we have this joining of man and God. The glory that God the Father expressed in Jesus is expressed by Jesus is passed on to us. And if he's asking us to be one with each other, that only flows because we can be one with God. Now that's pretty hard to, to imagine that we could be one with God. And yet that's the prayer. Jesus prayed this prayer. He prayed for oneness intimacy between man and God and between man and one another. How can it be? Well, at the end of the prayer, Jesus gives some hints toward it. In John 17, 26, he says this, And I have declared to them your name and will declare it, that the love, so now we've got glory, now we have the love with which you'd love me may be in them, now listen carefully, and I in them. <laughs> Philip, Jesus, show us the Father. I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. But Jesus says, I'm in them and they are in me. Well, that would imply that we are in God. And so if the world is going to see the glory of God, the world needs to see it through people who have an intimacy with God where we are one with God. And how do we do that? Well, we needed someone to become one of us so we could have someone to identify with and in. It comes back to this core value of God. God is love. So if I don't love you, my brothers and sisters, if I don't love you, then how is God in me? And if I do love you, then God is in me. I'm just reading the scripture. 1 John 4, 8 to 11. He who does not love does not know intimately God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested. The love of God was demonstrated to us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the mercy covering, the propitiation for our sin. You know, God loved the unlovely. God loved the rebel. God loved the reprobate. God loved the broken and the hurting so much that he demonstrated that love in manifesting Jesus. Now Jesus has gone back to the Father and Jesus in us, then how does God's love get demonstrated to our world? to the people of God. 
Because if we are in Christ and Christ is in God, then we are God and the glory and the love of God should be flowing through us to a hurting world. God was manifest through Jesus. Beloved, if God so loved us, we will also to love one another. Well, maybe the church is a place this love ought to be demonstrated more than anywhere else. When we mess up, when we break, break people's hearts, when we maybe say the wrong thing inappropriately, maybe when we do it intentionally and come to our senses and repent, will we forgive people? Will we let it go? Will we get over it? Will we grow past it? See, you have that famous verse in John 3.16, which says, For God so loved the world. And if we're in God, we're in Christ in God, then ought not we to love the world the same way? Ought we not be people that love like Jesus loved? God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him, whoever believes in Him, that's that intimate believing, should not perish but have everlasting life. Now it's interesting that word begotten turns up a number of times. Begotten implies something. And if you don't read it properly, you get a wrong implication. He loves reading genealogies. You know, Abraham begot and so on, begot, 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 begot. And I just forgot the whole lot because whatever. But they, and we all think about, we all think about conception and birth and, and the begottenness. But that, that's not what the word implies. Because if you read the Hebrew writer, he says this in verse 17 and 11. It won't come up on your screen, but Hebrews 17, 11, 17. By faith, Abraham... When he was tried, offered up Isaac. Therefore, and he, he that had received the promise, offered up his only begotten son. The word is monogenes, my only begotten son. Now, if you know anything of biblical history, Abraham had another son called Ishmael. In fact, he had Ishmael first. So how does the scripture call him the only begotten. Why does the scripture call him the only begotten? Because it's, it's talking about a different principle. The same principle as Jesus. See, see, when John writes about Jesus, remember, John writes his gospel after the resurrection, after the ascension. So when John is writing and referring to Jesus, he's looking at the big picture of Jesus, not the moments. And so when John writes in John 3, 16, the only begotten, he's talking about begotten in a different sense, in the same sense here. See, Abraham, we know, did not actually offer up his son. But as far as God was concerned, it was a done deal. That's why God stepped in. I know now, it says, that you will not withhold this from me. And so, so God steps in, but in God's mind, it was already done. See, the thing is for Abraham, he, there's two things about Isaac that's very important. One, he was the son of the covenant, the covenant of promise. See, Ishmael was the son of the works of the flesh. Isaac was the son of the covenant of promise, the promise that you and Sarah would have a child. And also, Isaac was the only one in Abraham's mind received from the dead. Because in Abraham's mind, as it records in Hebrews, he offered him up. And so there's this, this sense of both both a covenant and from the dead. 
And so if we understand that in the right context, we realise that Jesus as the begotten is the son of the covenant and the begotten from the dead. And and Jesus is unique. He's the one of a kind son. Uh, uh, And while, while we say that, there's a unique relationship involved. But when we hear it in text and modern ears, we tend to think birthed. And some religions go, well, Jesus was created by God. That's the begotten. No, 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 no. It's not what the scripture says. Other translations like the NIV, NLT, HCSB and NET, they use, uh, they, they use one and only. Or I would just say special would be a better word uh, instead of begotten because it tries to get rid of confusion. But let's find out what the scripture actually says. In Acts 13, 33 and 34, it says this, God has fulfilled this for us. Listen, fulfilled for us their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, obviously resurrection, as is recorded in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Today, the resurrection is where the begottenness comes. It's he's begotten from the grave. He's born from the grave in that he raised him from the dead. No more to return to corruption. He has spoken this, I give you the sure mercy of David. It's the resurrection that makes the cross powerful. It's the resurrection that makes Jesus the begotten Son of God, begotten from the grave. See, he existed as the Word eternal before creation. He's not a creator. He's existed and he becomes incarnation, not reincarnation. Herod thought he was reincarnated John. But the incarnation, God became flesh and dwelt among us as one of us. God did become one of us. Why? Listen to this. I love this. 1 Corinthians 15, 20 to 26. But now Christ is risen from the dead. So obviously the begotten son. And has become the first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. You know what first fruits implies? They're a following fruit. I mean, you can't have a first if there's no second because you're just the only one. There's a first fruit. It means there's fruit following. And those who've fallen asleep. For since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all shall be made alive, each one to his own, in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ's at his coming. The resurrection, the begottenness of Jesus tells me there is a resurrection life for me. And should Jesus tarry and I die before he comes back, there is a resurrection life that I will partake of because there is a firstfruit. And then it says, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God to the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and authority and power. He must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. The fact that Jesus was begotten tells me that there's hope for the future. The fact that Jesus came from the grave, begotten from the grave, tells me that I can be begotten from the grave. I, I can come from death to life. I can be born again while I'm alive. I, have, I can have resurrection life in me now. See, it's not believing in the natural or the historical Jesus that matters. It's believing in the resurrected Jesus Christ, our Lord, that matters. Paul says, if there's no resurrection, Christians are of all people most miserable. 
because we are fools. We're following something that's not real. But if there's a resurrection, and Paul says, but now Christ is raised from the dead. Resurrection tells me that there's something wonderful. There's something amazing that's ahead of me. It tells me that God became one of us so that we could be joined with God. Shane Willard shares it and, and there's a book, a great theologian has written a book, a talk called The Divine Dance. It's, we, we, talk, we think dancing's two people, but God's view is different. So the divine dance is about the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit. And each one is leading in turn and taking the steps and, and moving. But in, in Jesus becoming one of us, inviting us into union with Him that we might be one in Him, God invites us to the dance. Now, I remember school dances. I hated them. Firstly, I was a bloke. So dancing was a bit sus, right? I was a footy player and sports bloke. And, you know, and dancing, you know, girls, it's for girls. And boys who dance were girls. That's, that was my mindset as a kid. And so on Thursday afternoon when footy training was on, uh, I, would, I would try and sprain my ankle or something so I could miss out on dance on Friday. Um, but it wasn't just I didn't like dancing, it was a bit wussy. It was also that you'd go to dance and they'd line the kids up, boys on one side, girls on the other the hall. And they'd, they'd, they'd say, uh, when the music starts, you go and invite someone to dance with you. And if you know anything about dancers, school dancers, popular people invite the popular people to dance. And the hurting, broken, lonely, ugly people were left sitting on the seats. Just amplifying their abandonment amplifying their loneliness, creating all sorts. I, mean, I actually think it was a kind of child abuse. You're just making it worse for these kids who already feel lonely. Now you're making it public that now they're there and there's you know, 60% of the kids are dancing and 40% are feeling just so left out, so awkward, so scared, so afraid, too, too afraid to invite anyone. And it's like this, that God, God becomes one of us and he walks into the dance hall and he sees the hurting, broken, they're lonely. The people who are feeling rejected, neglected. It says, would you dance with me? Would you dance with me? I'm happy and honoured to dance with you. And God calls us to that because He became one of us. He approached us in a way that we could comprehend and he invites us to come into His family. He invites us to being born again of the Spirit. He, he invites us to resurrected life. I think it's amazing. That's why God became one of us. And I've only just begun the story. In the following weeks, I'm going to continue the story of why God became one of us.